Listen, we have been in our foundation series where we're coming back to foundational things about loving God, loving one another, and loving the world around us. And, you know, those three things are the reasonable and wise mission statement of just about every church that gets planted that's really trying to think biblically. They may not say it exactly like that, but it's either right there in their mission statement or it's right there in their DNA. That we're trying to build a church of disciples who love God, love one another, and love the world. It's in the DNA of the great commandment. And that's why it's in the DNA of most churches that are trying to be careful about their mission. Love God, love one another, and love the world. But when you hear those three things, it's easy for us to compartmentalize them. Especially when we think about them functionally, like Love God. Okay, I'm going to have my quiet time. Love one another. Okay, I'm going to be in this discipleship group. I'm going to do this DR. Or I'm going to serve on this ministry team. Love the world. Okay, at work, I'm going to be a witness. And, and to some degree, that, that's super reasonable and wise. But when you look at the scriptures, what you see is that these three things, to love God and to love one another and to love the world, are really part of one thing. They're really part of one thing. Each one of those components is affected by the other. Each one of those components is, is enriched or weakened by the lack of the other. There's a symbiotic relationship between our love for God, our love for one another, and our love for the world. When you strengthen one, you cannot help but strengthen the other two. And when you fail or say no to one where God is calling you, you will weaken the others because they're one thing. They're really all part of loving God. They're really all part of the heart of God and the image of God because he is the God who loves himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the God who loves his children till the end of time. He is the God who weeps over and longs for all to come to a knowledge of the truth and not be damned. That's who God is. One of the places that I love in the scriptures where this becomes evident, if you're being careful to walk through it, <clears throat> is in John 15. In John 15, Jesus is sending the disciples into the world to do the mission of evangelizing the world. It, 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 it's, a, it's a mission that we all want to take part in as a church. For those guys, it was literally their mission. When Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth, that's exactly literally what they did. So they had that outward mission. They were apostles. They were evangelists. They weren't local church pastors called to stay and serve. They were go, 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 go guys. That was their thing. That was their deal. That was their call. But if you look through John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, these five chapters, which which constitute the longest dialogue, unbroken, that we, we have in the Bible of Jesus talking. It's a mammoth, mammoth amount of data. It's five chapters of Jesus talking <laughs> uninterrupted. What you will see, through, see strewn through all five of those chapters is Jesus' heart so clear in this one commandment. Do you know what that commandment is? Love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. He keeps saying it again and again and again and again and again. He's sending these guys for the next several decades across the globe. 
But what he seems to be most concerned with over and over and over again is that they love one another. He starts out by washing their feet, right? Every, most of you guys know that story. He, he, he gets down into his undergarments. It's not underwear in our, in our vernacular, but it was, it was a humbling appearance. It was a servant setup. And he gets down, he washes all their feet. He says, is I, I'm your Lord and your master. So if I'm doing this, you must do for one another. And then he says, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And then he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And, and then he ends his prayer, the, the great high priestly prayer in John 17. Look through that prayer. Father, I pray that they might be one. He says it again and again, that they might be one, that they might be one, that the world will know that you sent me. And, and so in this great mission God has outward, he has this commandment that he wants us to give ourselves to, which is part of that commandment, which is part of imaging that, that mission, which is the people will see somehow through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is real, that God really sent him through our love for one another. So you see the connection between the outward mission and you see the connection between that and our love for one another in those passages. But as we move into what we're going to move into today, I'm really burdened that you see this other connection, which is the connection between your intimacy with Jesus, your love for God, your fellowship with him in the Holy Spirit, and your love for one another. And one of my favorite places this stands out is in John 15. It's not our primary passage. We're going to go back to 1 John 7. But I want you to listen to this, and I want you to listen to the flow of it. John 15, I'm going to read through 18 through 21. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Okay, so at the beginning of that is this promise. I'm about to leave. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise and ascend to heaven. But I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to come to you. I'm not going to leave you alone. Okay, that's the top end. That's the first bookend. I will not leave you. I will come to you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Then he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And now he's referring to his resurrection and the indwelling spirit of Jesus that will come to live inside the disciples. Because I live, resurrection, you will live. I'll indwell you with my spirit and make you new. And what will be the effect of his living inside us? He says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me and I in you. Intimacy. Intimacy with the Lord. I will come to you, I will live in you, you will know me. And then he says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and make myself known to him. At the top end, I will be with you, I won't leave you alone. At the back end, I will come and show myself to you. You will know me. Intimacy with God at the top, I'm going to come to you. I'm not going to leave you alone. Intimacy with God at the bottom, I will make myself known to you. And, and what's in this passage, the, what's the connecting tissue between the I'm coming to you to come live inside you and I'm going to show you who I am more and more and more is right there in verse 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And what's his commandment? 
There's only one explicit commandment in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 that Jesus goes over again and again and again. Love one another. Love one another as I've loved you. So I'm trying to show you this connection, that as, as we give ourselves to love one another as Jesus has loved us, I'm trying to motivate you, I'm trying to motivate myself. Because in the economy of my emotions and heart and experience, I, it's not enough for God just to say, Albert, love Luke, full stop, love Luke. I need something more than loving Luke to motivate me. I need something more than, Albert, love your wife to motivate me. I need something more than lay down your life for Michael to motivate me. I need something more. I, I do. I need something to give me hope. I need something to give me power. I need something to give me a sense of ability and joy and reward and strength. I need my love for Luke to be more than just my love for Luke, my love for Jen to be more than my love for Jen, my love for Michael to be more. And Jesus says, absolutely you do. And what, what that more is, is fellowship with me. What that more is, is intimacy with me. What that more is, is riches with me, Christ Jesus, your Lord. As you give yourself to giving yourself in my name, for my heart, for my glory, as you give yourself to give yourself, as you give yourself to, to loving one another, I will make myself known to you. That's what this promise is in John 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, focus one commandment in that whole chapter. Love one another. It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I met with Luke on Friday. We do a little, every once in a while, we, we try to get together and go over stuff. I walked in pretty cold, not like angry at Luke, just, you know, just not feeling it, so to speak. Luke went in frazzled, scrambled eggs. We both sat there like, you know. The engine of our hearts feels like it's 30 Celsius degrees below zero, and the doors feel very, very hard. We just kept talking about the Lord. We kept talking about our struggles. We kept confessing some things to each other. It doesn't always happen like this, but it happens a lot. And by the time we finished up, there was a moment where I just, I could have cried tears of joy sitting there with him. It wasn't him, it wasn't me. It, it was the Lord. He just came, and he was with us, and he showed himself to us. And I left much better for having been with Luke, around the things of Jesus Christ, concerned about the things of Jesus Christ, with Luke and for Luke, and him with me and for me, than I would have on my own. That's just what God does. So I, I just want to set this, this examination of 1 John 4, 7 up with that, that I want you guys to look forward to knowing more of Jesus Christ and experiencing more of Jesus Christ as he calls you to give yourselves to one another. He's not calling ourselves to slavery and drudgery and calling us to love each other and to lay down our lives for each other. If we believe him for it and we depend upon him for it, he's calling ourselves to growing intimacy with him. That is the real treat and the real treasure and the real joy in loving one another and giving our lives to each other.
<laughs> because as we'll see in this passage, giving our lives to each other <clears throat> is not always easy. And he's going to tell us that today as well. So that's the table setting. Our passage, our primary passage, as it's been for two weeks now, is 1 John 7, 4, 7 through 11. And there, the apostle who was at that upper room who wrote about all that stuff we just talked about, who witnessed the washing of the feet and Jesus' high priestly prayer and heard all these words and recorded them for us, he writes this in another letter. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might love through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is telling us here that we cannot love Jesus without loving his people. It is literally, and what John is saying, it is literally impossible. If Jesus has come into your life and united his spirit with your spirit, his love for people must come through you to them. It will happen, not perfectly, but truly. And this is one of John's indicators of those who are truly born again. The tests of 1 John, as they have been classically known. This is what 1 John 4, 7, and 11 is telling us. That we cannot love Jesus without loving his people. That kind of thing does not exist in the universe. You cannot have one without the other. But here's what's encouraging. One of the primary ways that God ensures that we will love one another is by commanding us to, like he does in here in this passage. In other words, the Lord knows this love for one another is not automatic, though it will happen. It happens through things like the working of God's word heard. When a born-again person who has the Holy Spirit in them hears God's word, whether his promises or his warnings or his commands, the Holy Spirit in them is able to take God's word and work conviction and hope and power so that what God calls us to do, God himself works in us, through us, our actual thinking, being convicted, hoping, wanting, trusting, crying out to God for the power of it. So John says at the bottom of this passage, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And remember what we said. We said, John is saying, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John is saying, God didn't just love you. He loved you like this this way, and this way is the way that you are called to love one another. So what we've been doing the last two weeks is reverse engineering this passage to ask, well, if at the bottom, John says, love each other this way, the way God loved us, then let's really think about what is John trying to say about how God did love us? What is special and unique about God's love 
that John is trying to get us to see so that by his grace we can love like him. And last time we considered two big points, that God loves because he loves. That God loves because he's loving. He loves us simply because that is who he is, and so we ought to love one another because the God who is loving lives in us. In other words, God's love for us is not sourced in reasons to love us, but in him. God doesn't love us because of what he can get from us, but because it's his nature to love. In fact, God loves us despite the fact that we did not love him. We see that in verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We don't deserve his love, and yet he still loves because that's his nature. And this is a call upon us to love others, not for what they can give us, not for what they are in themselves that deserves our love, but simply because since we are united to the God who is love, since his nature is now united to our nature, we love. We love for his sake, not for what we can get out of one another. I tried to appeal to you that this kind of loving people, because of God who is love and not because of what we can get out of him, not because of what we can get out of them, that such love will be manifesting itself in the spiritually mature, loving the spiritually immature, the person who has it together, loving the person who is a mess, the beautiful soul, loving the uglier soul, the interesting, loving the simpler, the more popular, loving the more socially awkward, the calm, being able to love the anxious, the more gifted, being able to love the less gifted, the richer loving the poor, the younger loving the older, the faith-filled loving the doubting, the encouraged loving the depressed. On and on and on and on. This kind of love allows those who have, in any category we can think of as advantageous, being able to love those who don't have, who aren't able to give back or to provoke love from others. And my next point was closely related to this, that God loves us with a pursuing love. We got that from 1 John 4, 10, that when God loved us, he sent. He sent. He pursued. And so if you guys remember, I asked us to consider, is it the posture of our heart to pursue? Or is the predominating posture of our heart to wait to be loved before we go out to love others? Because God is calling us to be lovers of people who pursue people and don't just wait to be loved before we will love them. And yes, some of us are in such broken places that we may for a long time need to receive more love before we can hope to give it. But God's goal for us in maturity, in growth, is that we would follow him, the one who says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the one who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So, those are the two pictures we talked about last week, and today I want to close us with one final point about 1 John 4, 7 and loving. And it's simply this, that John is trying to tell us that God loves with a sacrificial, long-suffering love. And so we also ought to love one another. That God loves us with a sacrificial and long-suffering love. 
And so we also ought to love one another this way. When John says, if God so loved us, he has this truth at the very core of what he means. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When God says, when John says God loved us this way, the very ground zero of this way, the way that God loved us is in verse 9. I'm sorry, is in verse 10. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, and now here's our focus, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God so loved people and loves people who do not love him, who do not pursue him, but in fact don't want him and reject him. He so loves them that he sent his very heart. He sent the one he loved and valued more than anything in the universe, the most glorious and valuable being in existence. He sent him to endure the full penalty of our selfishness and sin, to experience the hell <clears throat> that we have reaped in our place so that we could be saved and forgiven and redeemed and healed. That is the way that God loved us. And so John says, in light of this, love one another that way. Love one another this way. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because if we're, if we're thinking logically, biblically, with 50% of our brain, we have to ask ourselves, what is he calling us to do? He says, love each other the way I loved you in sending my son to be a guilt offering for all of your sins. Does John mean that he's calling us to pay for the sins of one another? No. No, he's not. We cannot provide atonement before God for anyone's sins. We can't provide atonement before God for our own sins, much less each other's. And in that sense... God's love through Jesus is absolutely unique. But it begs the question, if we cannot be the atoning sacrifice for another's sins, then what in the world does John mean by saying, if God so loved us, so we ought to love one another? Right after telling us that Jesus was sent to atone for our sin. Well, I think the first answer is pretty straightforward and pretty easy to get. John is calling us to sacrifice. John is calling us to sacrifice. The kind of love that John is calling us is the kind of love that gives up what is valuable to serve the other. We see this very clearly if we open up our passage and move up a few verses. In, John 3, 6, in 1 John 3, 16 through 17, John says this in the same letter a few moments earlier. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So this is 
really clear. John's making this connection between Jesus laying down his life and us sacrificing for each other. That's part of it, sacrificial giving. In this passage right here, laying down our lives like Jesus means giving up some of what we have for brothers and sisters in need. Like the opportunity that God has presented us through Arun this morning and through Mary Ann. Or the opportunities we have out of our benevolence fund that you guys give to, that we use some of your tithes and offerings for, to fund through our church over the years, to help some of us in hard times pay heating bills, pay mortgage bills, pay car bills, pay counseling bills. And I've seen and know about, not all of it, but I know about many of you doing this individually. I've seen you buy cars for other people. I've seen you give shelter and room and board to brothers and sisters with nowhere to live. And this is how Jesus is commanding us to love, to give sacrificially of our money and our goods and our houses. That's how I live. You guys essentially make it so that I can have heating and food and fuel for my children. <clears throat> not putting, not meaning to guilt you into that, but that's, that's the reality of pastoral ministry. I live because you give. But in our passage today, John says something else about God's love. Something more precise. He doesn't only bring up the fact, in our passage today, he doesn't only bring up the fact that Jesus laid down his life for us. He specifically mentions this phrase of propitiation for our sins. And I'm bothered by that. Not theologically, because I know that we're not going to atone for each other's sins. But because there's a reason why John said that. And not just he laid down our lives for us. There's a reason why John didn't only say he laid down our lives for us, but here added that he died for our sins. And, and both in the larger passage of 1 John and because of the larger reality of the scriptures, what I think John is inviting us into and inviting us to consider that is unique about the way that God loved us and how we should so love one another is that he wants us to have the kind of love for one another that not only sacrifices, and I know these are connected, but they're not the same thing, that not only sacrifices, but listen, but that suffers. He wants us to have the kind of love for each other that not only sacrifices, but that suffers, that knows it's going to suffer, that is expecting that suffering, and that will persevere and endure through that suffering. He wants us to have the kind of love for one another that will get hurt and disappointed and yet continue to love. He wants us to have the kind of love for one another that will experience someone's weaknesses and sins and have the muscles of their heart strained many times by those weaknesses and sins and yet continue to love them. He wants us to have the kind of love that will not give in to cynicism, but be willing to hope in the Christ at work in the brother and sister and in his grace. He wants us to have the kind of love that will not be destroyed by holding on to anger and frustration and bitterness, but that will run to God for grace to either keep our tongue and keep our temper or for the sake of love, say the hard truth in the hopes that 
done with enough love, it will bring healing and deepen that love in the long run. Many of you guys have red flags going up, maybe. Qualifiers. What, what, what does this mean? How do I, I've been hurt. I've had people sabotage our relationship. I've had people betray me. And I, I don't mean some things. And I want to make sure you know what I don't mean. I don't mean that we trust people who have proven themselves untrustworthy. I don't mean that we trust people who have proven themselves untrustworthy. That's not love. That's foolishness. I don't mean that we always protect someone from the consequences of their sin. That may not be love, but actually enabling sin, protecting sin, nourishing sin. The Bible is clear that loving people means that we will confront serious and unrepentant sin. And if need be, that for love's sake, for warning them truly, functionally, we will even cut off relationships to love a rebelling brother or sister. Not to mention that love cares about the sufferer. Love cares about the oppressed. God has a desire that you have to not suffer needlessly and to protect those who are being oppressed. Some of you have endured heartbreaking decisions to end relationships, not because you wanted to or didn't try, but because it finally seemed that wisdom and sanity left only that option for you. Some of you are in very, very difficult marriages and relationships right now and who endure it only by the grace of God. So there are qualifications, certainly. There is foolishness. There is enablement. We want to avoid those things. But barring those sober qualifications... To love one another like Jesus is calling us to love one another, it certainly involves suffering the sin and weakness of brothers and sisters and continuing to love them. And if, and if, and in many, if not most instances, continuing to stay in that relationship. And listen, doesn't this kind of love, this suffering love, doesn't it, isn't it like the only thing that really makes sense out of all these one another's that we read in the New Testament that call us to be humble with each other, that call us to be patient with each other, that call us to be gentle and forbearing, that call us to be long-suffering and forgiving and to bear with one another, that call us to refrain from anger and turn from wrath and to put aside critical spirits and judging and bitterness those are all commands in the New Testament you can find over and over and over again. And think about them. They're the kinds of commands that are only needed in an environment where sins and weaknesses are requiring one kind of response instead of another kind of response. No one needs to be told to be patient and long-suffering with people who meet all their expectations and never hurt them and only fulfill all their soul-matey desires. And soul-matey desires are great. We talked about that last week. I won't belabor it. May you all have many soulmates. But these commands are for a community being called to a kind of love that suffers. 
This is how Jesus loved us with a long-suffering love. This is how Jesus loves you right now. We grieve him, but he stays, and he helps, and he heals. And this is what he's calling us to as well, a suffering love. And its source is supernatural. And when the world sees it, they see something supernatural. And over time, through its supernatural power, it transforms us into something beautiful. And it has to be that way. It has to be that way. It has to be that kind of suffering love. It, it has to transform us into something beautiful. Because through it, we end up looking more and more like him. He loves us that way. So as we seek to give ourselves to each other that way for his sake, we're going to look more and more and more like him. And that is the most beautiful thing there is in the universe. He loves us with a very patient love. He loves us with a long-suffering and enduring love. We know this intuitively, that suffering love is beautiful love. Did you ever see The Miracle Worker, the story of Anne Sullivan. Sullivan, who taught Helen Keller how to read and write? <clears throat> and there are parts that just make you cry, because Helen Keller was so impoverished in body, mind, and soul. When Anne worked with her, she beat her, Helen beat her over and over again. And Anne would get very angry and she'd fight her back and then she'd come back and try to help some more and Anne would beat her some more and she'd fight her back and try to get her. It went on and on and on and on and on and on. This, Helen Keller was literally like a, a beast. She would just beat this woman trying to help her. But Anne didn't give up. And eventually she, she breaks through. She tames this wild spirit and this woman, Helen Keller, who is blind and deaf and mute, learns how to see in a way and hear in a way and speak in a way and is given, not literally, but truly, eyes, ears, and a voice through this long-suffering love of Ansel. And it's beautiful. That's the kind of love God has for you. That's the kind of love he's calling us to have for each other. It's impossible. But the only alternative, really, I mean, when you, when you, when you run the trajectory out, you know, for a year, two years, three years, a hundred years, a thousand years, is to turn into something very ugly. Think about Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka. A few years ago when my kids were not acting the way I wanted them to, I would just stop whatever we were doing and pull up Veruca Salt. Do you remember her? From Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? I want it now! I want it! You will get it for me, Daddy! You will do what I say! I want it, I want it, I want it! And even they got it. Even they would, you know, these little kids, they would, oh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. 
But, but really, at the end of the day, those are our two options. And you know what those options are? They're heaven and hell. They're heaven and hell. I will either become the most glorious, beautiful being that right now you couldn't ever imagine. That if you, C.S. Lewis says, if you, if you saw, if I, if I make it into Jesus' arms and he continues his perfecting work, if you saw me in that state, you'd be tempted to worship me. I'll either look like that in a few centuries or less, or I'll look like something so horrible, it's the stuff of nightmares. That's the trajectory that every human soul is going on. To be beautiful like God, or to be so ugly. It's literally hell itself. Yet as we struggle to love like this, we start to look more and more like him. Think about becoming stronger, but more tender. Think about becoming holier, but more humble and approachable. Think about becoming thicker-skinned, but bigger-hearted. Think about becoming more increasingly unshakable, and at the same time, more increasingly welcoming. Don't those ideas represent your favorite people? <laughs> like when you think about the favorite people you've bumped into or run into or admired, strong and tender, thicker-skinned, but big-hearted, holy, really humble and approachable. That's who Jesus is. And again, John is inviting us into a kind of love that we can never exercise in our own power. You will not be able to love this way from your own resources. Most of you absolutely know that already. And that's why this passage is predicated on being born of God. Born of God. You must have God's very spirit living in your spirit, having made you his child. And then once that happens, we don't just automatically turn into these perfect creatures, right? Because God wants us to experience this new life in relationship to him. We talked about this before. He doesn't, presto, Luke Staley, new creature. Go off, Luke. See you later. Do your new creature stuff. You're born again stuff. Bye-bye. I'll see you in heaven. No, no, no. God meant Luke to learn dependence on Jesus, to get to know Jesus, have intimacy with Jesus, to experience who Jesus is by having to rely on Jesus all the time as a new creature. So this new life, this intimacy with Jesus, this joy in Jesus, it comes as we fight to do this thing that in ourselves we absolutely know we cannot do. As we keep trying and keep crying out, he meets us. He meets us with help. He meets us with grace. He meets us with increasing maturity. But it's from him. It's the kind of love that takes running again and again and again to the throne of God's grace to find the stuff we don't have when we're hurt. The stuff we don't have when we've had it. The stuff we don't have when we're just tempted to give up on the person, the situation. When we're so angry, we feel like we're just going to go into a hopeless another cycle. When we get so cynical and bitter, we have to get somebody else to break us out of it. 
But as we do, with even a mustard seed of faith, we will find power because he is faithful, because this is what he came to do. He came to change you, to make you beautiful, to make you a means of his love to one another and to the world around him that needs him. And with even a mustard seed of faith, when you come to that throne of grace and mercy, with even a mustard seed of faith, a mustard seed of boldness, because that's where you need to go, brothers and sisters, again and again and again and again. You will find power if you do not give up. You will find power immediately or eventually to forgive where you thought it was absolutely impossible to forgive. To ask forgiveness when you felt so hard as a rock. There's no way I'm going to make myself more vulnerable to that person and ask their forgiveness. No way. Jesus has the power to get you there. I promise you he does if you will seek him for it. I promise you he does. He has the power to keep you seeking humility when you're corrected and you feel arrogant about it and you're just, you just want to hit back or throw in the towel. He has the power to help you be faithful when you want the easy way out for, for any number of reasons. This kind of love doesn't come from us, it comes from him. And it's beautiful, and it's glorious, and it's worth pursuing. And it means that we can risk relationship with each other. We can risk. Because he's durable, he's faithful, and he underwrites our relationships with each other to make them able to be this way. So, let's be that kind of church that embraces the kind of love God's calling us to. Long-suffering, sacrificial love. And, and we'll meet him. We'll experience him in that. That's where he shows up. That's where we find true joy. As I started with, whoever has my commandments to love one another as he has loved us, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And I will make myself known to him. That's his promise. Joy joy as we pursue this kind of love. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words and make them effective for your people. I pray that you would cause us to have hope that runs to you for the grace and mercy and power to do what we cannot do for our marriages for our children for our parents for one another in this room for the future of what this church is being called to be that isn't now would you please Lord in all the ways that you desire it move our hearts towards one another in all the ways that you're longing to see your bride look like you more and more and more. Would you move our hearts towards each other? Would you give us power? Would you help us to keep clinging to you? Would you help us to believe that there is joy in you as we seek? 
to love each other with a long-suffering love and that you will meet us, Lord.